Well, we are in part two, week two of our series, Brand New, and we titled this series Brand New because when Jesus came into the world, he came to introduce something that was, you guessed it, brand new. Not a reboot of something old, not a revised edition or a modernized edition of something old, not Judaism 2.0, not Temple 2.0, not even Religion 2.0, not Leviticus plus Jesus, not any of that. He came to introduce something entirely brand spanking new, a new way of approaching and connecting with our Father in heaven that Jesus came to introduce and institute a new covenant, a new way of connecting with God, a new relationship, a new people, not a new place, a new way of doing all of this, a new connection with our heavenly father. And he connected and he attached every bit. This is what we said last week. He connected and attached every single bit of it to himself. And last week specifically, we talked and introduced the fact that Jesus came to put an end to the temple model and the temple mindset of religion and the temple mindset of how we approach God. That the temple model is, is, is the idea that there are sacred places, there are sacred texts, sacred men and sacred and, and sincere followers who are attempting to do all the things that we need to do to connect with God. And that when it existed back then and when the temple model exists around the world today and when it exists in a local church today and when it exists in believers' hearts today, it creates a standard that very few elite people could ever hope to tangibly meet and a mindset that is always insecure about connection with God and confused about what is required to stay in God's good graces and to stay in right standing with God. And what we said last week and the beautiful beginning of the brand new is that when Jesus came and introduced this brand new way of connection with God into the world, this is what he came to introduce. What Jesus came to introduce was more simple, it was more difficult, it was more clear, and it was more personal than anything anyone had ever seen. Not only was it brand new, it was better. The Jesus way is brand new. It is not a remix of something old. It is brand new, and it is better, a new and a living way of connecting with our heavenly Father. And what we said last week is that in many ways, we are still trying to figure out how to live in and live out that new and how to not shrink back to the old and to break us away from some of those old ways of thinking. We're diving into this series brand new to help us live in and live out Jesus's new. Now, speaking of leaving behind the old and jumping into Jesus's new, the feeling that some of us have when I talk about leaving behind the old and leaving behind the legalism and, 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 and not thinking there's sacred places and their sacred texts and their sacred, like all of that stuff. The feeling that you and I have when we come to talk about the leaving that old, that feeling and some of the tension that you may have felt as I brought up certain things, that tension is nothing new. In fact, some of the very first followers of Jesus face that very tension every single day as they follow Jesus. Because just like it feels uncomfortable for us to say that there are some things that we have held on to that we need to let go of, there were some things that it felt very wrong for the first followers of Jesus to leave behind. There were things that they felt guilty not practicing. And the reason they feel that, and the reason you feel that, and the reason I feel that, even as I'm the one preaching it, is simply this, it's a powerful truth, that our consciences determine religious realities, whether they reflect reality or not. Now that's a big phrase to sink in and to, and to absorb. So I'm going to say it again. Our consciences determine religious realities, whether they reflect reality or not. See, your conscience has, in my conscience, has been shaped by the world that we grew up in by, and by our earliest religious experiences. Consequently, for each of us, there are things that ding our conscience or don't ding our conscience because of the way we were raised or because of the way we, what we were taught or what we were modeled for when, for us when we first began became followers of Jesus, 
things that were significant in a certain denomination that you were raised in, or because of how strict or how lax your family followed certain things and certain teachings and practiced certain things and how effectively they applied certain things. I will never forget one of the first encounters that I had with this truth. I was, I've mentioned this before, I was homeschooled for a long time, for a long stretch of life, and I was fairly sheltered through the early portion of my life, which is not a bad thing. But when I eventually went back into public school and I started making new friends, I, I, I met friends who were Christians people who claimed to be followers of Jesus who didn't come from the same background that I came from and had different convictions about certain things that I that, 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 that the way I grew up, we had certain convictions around. And so all of a sudden I was encountering all kinds of beliefs and convictions about things from people who claimed to be Christians, but they were different than my convictions and my beliefs. And so I'll never forget some of the first conversations I had with friends who were Catholic and they would talk about drinking. And they would talk about drinking. And I would talk about how my family, in my family, we didn't drink. And they were like, well, why don't you, you don't drink like at all? Like why, like, why don't you drink at all? And I'd say, well, we don't drink because we're Christians. And they would say, well, us too. But we, like, we're Christians too. We drink at church. And I was like, I mean, like, like what? Like, like, you know, like, like the way that I had grown up and the way that they grew up were so incredibly different. I was like, wait a minute, what? You drink at church? Like, we don't drink ever. And it was like this difference of, of opinion because of how we were raised and the, and the, and the places that we had come from. And I was like, whoa. Like, and we'd have conversations. I'd say, well, why do you think it's okay to drink? Oh, you know, like, is it, I'm 15. Like, like, well, why do you think it's okay to drink? And they'd say, well, Jesus turned water into wine. And I would say, okay, but that's not real. It wasn't like real wine. And they said, well, why do you think it wasn't real wine? And the honest answer that, to that question was because I was raised in a Pentecostal church. That's the only, like, like the Bible says, Jesus turned water into wine. The only reason that I didn't think, it was like, no, Jesus turned water into grape juice. Like that's, that's the whole reason that, that's, that's the reason that I say that our, our consciences, the way that we were raised, the people that were influences on us, the way that we were raised, whether it was strict or lax and all that kind of stuff, it shapes who we are and it shapes the way we view reality and the way that we respond to different things and the way we respond to different stimulus, even when it comes to religious things. See, Jesus' earliest followers who were mostly Jewish background, they all felt this tension all the time, everywhere they went. Where Jesus had come to introduce something brand new, but they were raised in an environment that was incredibly strict, that was incredibly temple bound, that was incredibly temple mindset. They had been told their entire life that following the law and making sacrifices at sacred places determined by sacred texts, instructed by sacred men, was the only way they could connect with God. And so when Jesus came to introduce this brand new, they dealt with and they lived with the struggle of, but we have been told our entire lives. And now you are saying this, and you are saying that that has come to a close, but we still feel like it's important. And consequently, because they didn't want to violate their consciences while following Jesus, early Jewish Christians tried to assimilate and add the Jesus model into and onto the temple model. In other words, they tried to do both. They wanted to follow Jesus. They did not want to violate their conscience. They, did, they wanted to follow Jesus. They didn't want to ding their upbringing. They tried to follow Jesus while also living for the temple. They tried to embrace the new while still clinging to the old. 
And then eventually, along came this guy named Saul, who eventually became known as Paul, to rescue, rescue Christianity from the temple model. He did not show up on the pages of Scripture as a Jesus follower. He actually was a Pharisee, an expert in the Jewish law and faith, in, an, in the words that we're using. He was an expert in the old. He was an expert in the temple model. He was an expert in the temple mindset. And so when he shows up, he set out to destroy the church, but he became a Jesus follower while trying to destroy the church, which is a wonderful coincidence there. And, and, and while he's trying to destroy the church in the Jesus movement, he becomes a follower of Jesus. This expert in Jewish faith, in the, in the old, he said, this is not an add-on to the Jewish faith. This is something entirely new. Everyone is invited. This is not just a special people. You can connect with God anywhere, not just at a certain place. And the commands have been reduced and simplified to one, not some crazy list of 613. This is new, new. This is new, new, new. This is brand new for everyone everywhere. And so Paul traveled around what's now the Middle East and Eastern Europe into all of these non-Jewish areas, and he would preach the gospel and start these ecclesias, preaching and proclaiming that Jesus came in, came to do this new thing in and for the world, and everyone was welcomed and everyone was invited. Great! Woo! And you would think that's just like that's just amazing. That's phenomenal. Such a great thing is happening. And then these other groups, these people who had the conscience that would, that would strike them about this brand new, these other groups would follow him around. And after he left, they would go and explain the real truth, the part that Paul conveniently left out. They would explain their version of the real truth. And their real truth was that Jesus was a new part of an updated thing, specifically that while they, these people were Gentiles who had chosen Jesus, now that they were following Jesus in order to truly and really follow Jesus, in order to do it right, they needed to follow the full Jewish law, including for all of the men to practice the custom of circumcision. Now, one of the places that this was most common was in the region of Galatia. And Paul tells us at the start of his letter to the Galatian churches that he has become apoplectic. This means that Paul was angry to the point of being overwhelmed and consumed with anger. He is apoplectic that the people of the Galatian churches have turned away from the new and are reverting to and adding back in this old way of thinking. Paul was consumed with anger that people had turned away from the new, had, 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 had chosen the new, and then were choosing to bring back in the old. Why would Paul get so upset about this? Like, why would Paul get so upset about people choosing to embrace something that he had embraced his entire life? Why would Paul get upset about people choosing to embrace health and hygiene and ceremonially clean standards that he had lived and practiced his entire life? Why would Paul get so upset about that? We get his answer a few chapters later in Galatians chapter 5. Here's why Paul was apoplectic. Here's why Paul was so consumed with anger about them choosing to add on the old back onto the new. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, it says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And this is just an important stopping point. I know we're only a few words into the, into the passage here, but this is important for us to know. If your version of Christianity has not made you more free, you have the wrong version of Christianity. If the, if the way and if your approach to following Jesus has not made you more free, it's possible 
that you have not actually been following Jesus, but you've been following Jesus with a temple model attached to it. It's, if it's not simple, you have not found the way, the Jesus way of following Jesus and connecting to your heavenly father. If it's not simultaneously a little more difficult, you haven't found the Jesus way. If God's not more clear and where you stand with him isn't more clear, you have not found the Jesus way. If connection with God isn't more personal than it's ever been in your entire life, you have not found the Jesus way. If that's not been your experience, if that's not your personal experience right now, what you were taught and how you have walked and maybe how you are walking right now is a temple approach to Jesus. It's an attempt to join the old and the new, but Jesus came to free us from our sin and to free us from the old way of connecting to God. And then Paul went on. So stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. See, here's the thing. Paul was not against the procedure of circumcision. Now, if you pay attention to our local news, some guys in our city are wildly opposed to the procedure of circumcision. We're not really talking about that. Paul was not on that side of things. He was not against the procedure of circumcision. He was, he was against the mindset and the belief that that, that circumcision would actually make someone right with God. That some part of our action could make us right with God. Paul was against the mindset to merge. Paul was against the urge to merge. Paul was against the, uh, the, the mindset that said, we've got to add on and merge this Jesus thing with this old thing in order to, so that we don't ding our consciences, so that, so that everyone believes and lives with the same convictions that we have. Paul was against the idea of Jesus plus anything else when Jesus called himself the only way to the Father. Paul was against the urge to merge. He goes on, Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to the whole law, to obey the whole law. For Paul, an expert, again, an expert in the Old Testament law, the law was an all in or a law out or, or all out. You can't dip your toe in the law and dip your toe in Jesus. He said, these are entirely different things. Jesus is an entirely new thing from this old thing. You can't dip your toe in one and dip your toe in the both. You can't mix the two. And here's Paul's real, real big argument. You can't mix the two because when you mix the two, you get the best of neither and the worst of both. When you mix the two, you get the best of neither and the worst of both. See, whenever we try to, to mix it, whenever we try to make it Jesus plus anything, what we think we will get is a more gracious version of the temple. That's what we're ultimately trying to get. Whenever we try to mix these, we're trying to get and thinking that we will end up with a more gracious version of the temple. Instead, what you end up with is a legalistic, graceless version of following Jesus. You get the best of neither and you get the worst of both. So Paul said, I declare every man who lets himself be circumcised, he is obligated to obey the whole law. If you dip a foot, a toe in that water, you better be willing to jump in, Paul would say. He says in verse four, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've been separated from Christ because you're trying to do it apart from Christ. You've been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. See, the only way that I can, I can maybe think of to help us understand this is simply this, that like imagine if someone wanted to give me a gift card. 
Someone wanted to treat me to something really nice. Someone just wanted to, wanted to, wanted to bless me with a gift card. And so they, they said, like, well, where, where's your favorite restaurant? We want to give you $100 to your favorite restaurant. And what if in that moment, instead of going, oh, that's so wonderfully kind of you, what if my response was, oh, man, that's so nice, but I can't let you do that. I can't let you give me $100 to my favorite restaurant. Let me pay you back for part of it. Let me, let me give you $30 and then you give me the gift card. Now, let, here, here's what you know and here's what I know. The second that I pay back something of the gift card, it ceases to be a gift card. The second that I try to pay for the gift, it ceases to be a gift. And simultaneously, the second that we, try to, that, that we begin to try to earn grace, it stops being grace. And what Paul was trying to say to these believers, the second that you try to earn it through Jesus plus circumcision, or Jesus plus the Old Testament law, or Jesus plus the Old Testament sacrifices, or Jesus plus the Old Testament hygiene standards, or Jesus plus anything, or Jesus plus your own conviction, or Jesus plus anything that Jesus didn't say, the second that you try to earn it, that you try to earn Jesus by anything other than Jesus, you have ceased to be and you have fallen away from grace. Paul would go on in verse five. He said, for through the spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. No value. Maybe you want to hit that in the, in the comments right now. No value. No value. No value either way. Not better for circumcision. Not better because you chose uncircumcision. Not better for either not better for either. Then Paul dropped this, this haymaker right in the middle of it. In the middle of saying, it's not about Jesus plus anything else. It's not about Jesus plus your actions. It's not Jesus plus your, like, plus your ability to do what's right. Here's what, here's what he said. He said, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, and we go, oh, okay, whoa, whoa. oh, Paul's saying something does count. Something does make us right with God. Like, like, like what, what, what counts? He says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And everyone reading this in, in the Galatian church who had, who, had, who had somewhat fallen back into the temple mindset and had fallen back to the idea that there was a whole bunch of things that they were required to do, they would go, oh, Paul, okay, have you seen how thick the Bible is? I mean, like, even, like I mean, we don't have like the New Testament, like we're still re reading your letter firsthand. Like, but like, have you seen the, how old, how, how big and thick the Bible is? You probably mean there's like 10 things and this is one of them. You, or, or probably you mean like there's 613 laws and this is like a big one. And Paul would say, no. No, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That word counts would be the equivalent of saying, this is how we work out our salvation. This is how we work it out. Paul says, the only way to work out your faith, the only way that, that God sees your faith and goes, yes, that's something that I'm proud of. The only display of your faith that God cares about is that you grow in the way your faith causes you to love other people. The only display of your faith that God cares about is that you grow in the way that your faith causes you to love other people. Circumcision and the whole temple model, this is Paul's entire point, circumcision and the whole temple model is ultimately about, hey God, are we okay? God, are we okay? Like, have I done the stuff that counts to you? Have I figured out how to make you happy with me? Like, I, like I know, I know, I know, I had that mistake I made yesterday, and I, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm going to give like a big offering at church. But like, so, like, can we be okay? Like, are we okay? 
the temple model and the temple mindset and the circumcision mindset and this group of people who had their own convictions and their own beliefs and their own consciousness showing up and pressing it on other people, their whole thing was, is God okay with us? And they were trying with their actions and everything they did to stick to the letter of the law so God would be okay with them. And Paul is reminding us here of a powerful truth, of a powerful truth. If someone will die for you, you never have to wonder if they're for you. If someone will die for you, you never, and I never have to wonder if they're for me. Paul says, stop worrying about how you treat God. God's fine. I mean, don't be a jerk, like, but stop worrying about how you treat God. God is fine with you. God took all his anger toward humanity's sin and he attached it to Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus died, so did God's anger at you. God Because of Jesus, because of Jesus' sacrifice for you, God has only love for you when you are found in Christ. Paul says, now, having experienced that love, go find someone to show that love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He would go on to say this, you are running a good race. Who cut in? Which, by in, a, in the context of a sermon on uh, of, of a, a passage written about circumcision, is wonderful wordplay by Paul. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Who cut in on you? Who has led you astray? Who has led you astray? This line, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. See, here's here's what's so interesting. Paul is reminding us here that when someone leverages guilt or someone leverages shame or someone leverages manipulation to correct your behavior is to make you more like them. That does not come from God. That's the way the world tries to get you to conform to the patterns of this world. And even when it comes from a religious context, that is still a worldly model trying to get you to conform to someone else's standard for you. And what's so interesting about that is simply this, that conviction will come from the Spirit of God to make you more like Christ. Like conviction will come in our hearts and our minds as the Spirit of God lives in us to convict us and to draw us, to to transform us, to become more like Christ. Conviction will also come from the Word of God to make you become more like Christ. That as we read the Word of God, we should be convicted by the Word of God. That when we see something in the Word of God that makes us go, ooh, I'm not living up to that, that it should lead us to want to live up to that. But at the same time, guilt and shame and manipulation to conform you to someone else's standards have nothing to do with the things of God. Paul says that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. And so if you have found yourself in an environment or you have found yourself around people who use guilt and leverage shame and leverage manipulation to get you to conform to their standards and their convictions and their conscience and their way of approaching approaching God, I just would caution you. 
it may be time to press some of those voices away and to lean into the Spirit of God and to lean into the Word of God because at the end of the day, we do not want to become more like someone else's standard. We want to live up to the standard of Christ. And godly conviction comes from His Spirit and from His Word, but does not come through guilt and shame and manipulation. Those are the world's ways to get you to conform to the world's standards or to a religious standard. Jesus wants you to become like Him. And He is Love. That's why the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Paul says a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. A little bit of temple thinking, he said. A little bit of temple thinking can wreck this whole new thing. Paul knew that if the smallest bit of temple thinking got mixed in with Jesus' new thing, it would corrupt and it could corrupt the whole thing. Then Paul would go on to say, as for those agitators, in verse 12, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. What? It's this word apocopto. Apocopto. This means Paul was saying, I wish they would cut it off. I mean, there's the old full house, cut it out. Paul's saying, cut it off. Like if they're if they're so concerned with, with, with all of that, I wish they would just go the whole way and cut it off. Paul was pretty intense and adamant about not mixing the old with the new. You could say Paul was pretty intense. You could say that Paul was apoplectic. He was ready to, 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 to fight people. In verse 13, he closes out this thought. He begins to close out this thought. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Here's what Paul's saying. When we cling to old things, we always miss the main things. See, that verse, where that part says, Paul, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. When Paul says, do not use freedom to indulge the flesh, yes, he's talking about the flesh and your sinful desires. You should not use your freedom to indulge your sinful desires in the flesh. But he's also talking about that desire in me and that desire in you to live up to someone else's standards for you and expectations of you and convictions for you and conscience for you. You do not live to someone else's standards. You don't not use your flesh to live up to their standards of the flesh. It says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but use your freedom to serve one another humbly in love. Paul here is reminding the Galatians and reminding us that any standard that we place in our lives above the standard of love that Jesus called us to, it misses the whole point. Jesus' main thing, Jesus' whole thing, Jesus' single command, Jesus' final example at the Last Supper was love one another as I have loved you in the same way that I have loved you in humble service, in humble sacrifice, taking off all the, all, all the symbols of my royalty and all the symbols of my authority, I choose to serve in love. He said, love your neighbor, love your brother and sister in Christ. Love your enemies and those who mistreat you. Love not in feeling, but in word and in deed. Love beyond superficial differences. Love beyond superficial boundaries. Love beyond intention to love in action. Paul says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't use your freedom to indulge your sinful desires. And don't use your freedom to go back to the old way of thinking that there is some standard that you have to live up to other than Jesus. Jesus' standard was love one another. And if you're thinking like, wait, wait, okay, like again, 
Like, all you're saying to do is love. Like, that's just a hippy-dippy thing. You do, do whatever you want as long as it feels good and, lo- you know, love, 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 love is a feeling. Here's the thing. This is not that. This is something so much stronger and so much more powerful than that. Hippy-dippy, do whatever you feel like and love when, you, when, it, when it feels good. That is selfish love. That is not the Jesus model of love. Jesus called us to love like he loved us. Us. This is actually the reason, this is why I say that following Jesus is more simple, but it's more difficult. There are not 613 laws that you have to live up to. There is one. There is, there, so, it's, so, it's, so it's far more simple. But that one command to love the way that Jesus loved up is far more difficult. It's far more difficult. Real love, love put in action, sacrificial love, love like Jesus love is way more difficult. And I would say it this way, that personifying love is a higher calling than fulfilling the law. Personifying love, becoming love, being love, constantly living in love is a higher calling than fulfilling the law. It just simply is. Fulfilling 613 laws. It wasn't all that hard if you had enough money, had enough time, had enough ability to pay attention to the detail. And if you didn't have that, let's just be honest, you could find a loophole around it, right? You could just find a loophole around it. The Jesus way and the calling of Jesus is that regardless of how much money you have, you love. Regardless of how much time you have, you're called to love. Regardless of how much, how well you pay attention to the details, you are called to love. No one is above the call to love and no one is below the call to love. All are called to love. It's Jesus. We follow the example of Jesus. We live for the standard of Jesus. And the Jesus standard and the Jesus calling is for us to love. At at all times, everywhere we go, everything we do, that everything that comes from us should be love. And if you ever don't know what to do, you just follow Jesus' example and you do what love requires of you. And the reason this is more simple, but it's more difficult is simply this. There is no loophole to the law or the call to love. There is no loophole in the Jesus model of love. There is no loophole in Jesus' example of love that for every single one of us, wherever we find ourselves, there is always a next step because there is always a way that we can grow in love. And then Paul wrapped it up with this, with this thought. He said, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law, all 613 of them, are really ultimately, Paul would say, wrapped up. The whole temple thinking, the whole old old covenant thinking, it's ultimately wrapped up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This command, it comes from Leviticus. Paul's not making this up. This command came from Leviticus. This was part of their law from their foundation as a nation. Judaism had this all along, but missed it because of the temple thinking. This was supposed to be the main thing that informed all the other things all along from the very beginning. And instead, because of an emphasis on the temple and an emphasis on ceremony and an emphasis on hygiene and an emphasis on purity, this became the missed thing. Now, to close out today, here's a question that I think we should all ask ourselves. And if you're really bold, maybe you should ask someone that you're in relationship with, ask them to answer this question for you. What step must I take to grow in love? What step must I take to grow in love? 
That if, there, that if there's no loopholes in love, and if all of us can grow in love, that no matter how long we've been living and breathing, and no matter how long we've been following Jesus, there's a way to grow in love. What step do I need to take to grow in love, to live up to Jesus' example, to live up to Jesus' standard, to follow in Jesus' footsteps, not to try to earn Jesus' love, but to try to show Jesus' love to the people that I live, work, and breathe the same air as. What step must I take to grow in love? And to close out, here's just a few ideas. Love listens. Love listens. In a world where we're all great at knowing and shouting the answers to the world's problems, no one listens. But what if Jesus' followers listened and we heard what someone else was saying about how we could meet their needs? I think so many of us, were so quick to rush to meet someone's needs, but we forget to ask how. And if you rush to meet someone's needs with your solution that doesn't actually meet their needs because you failed to listen, you have not been loved. Love listens. Love learns. Love learns. It is difficult to love someone that you do not understand. And in order to understand someone, in order to love someone well, you have to learn about them, which means you have to listen. You have to watch. You have to observe. You have to pay attention. So for some of us, that's the way that we grow in love, is to actually slow down and pay attention, and to slow down and watch, and to slow down and hear, and to slow down and observe and pay attention, because love learns. Love gives. So here's the thing. You never know how much you're willing to love until it costs you something. Until it costs you something. And at the end of the day, some of us, we're really well, willing to love in our, in our intention, and we're really willing to love when it doesn't cost us anything. When there's no cost of our time, there's no cost of our finances, there's no cost of our, of our time doing what we care about the most. But here's the thing, if you want to grow in love, it may cost you something. And the way that you're going to grow in love is that you will choose to love even when it costs you something, because love gives, and then finally, love goes. Love goes. Here's the thing. You never know how much you're willing to love until it requires you to move away from your comfort and to move towards a mess. Love goes toward the mess. Love moves towards the mess. You want to know how we know that? Because Jesus moved toward the mess. And for some of us, we're really willing to love as long as it doesn't get messy. We're really willing to love as long as we get to stay clean. We're really willing to love as long as we don't have to actually go into an area of town that we don't particularly like. We're willing to love as long as we don't have to go around certain people. But here's the thing, love goes. You want to know how we know that love goes? Because Jesus moved toward the mess. You want to know how we know Jesus moved towards this? Because Jesus moved towards you. Jesus moved towards the mess of humanity. Jesus left heaven. Jesus goed from heaven. Jesus went from heaven. Jesus came to the earth. Jesus left the comfort of heaven and the perfection of heaven to move toward our mess because that was the only way to save us. Love goes. So here's the question for you and here's the question for me as we close the day. As we step into the brand new, as we step into this idea that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. As we set ourselves to follow Jesus' standard and Jesus' example for us, here's the, here's the question. What step must I take to grow in love? That's the only standard. That, Paul said that's the only thing that counts. Jesus, on the last night of, 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 with his disciples, he said, this is my one command. This is the new command that I give to you. Love one another. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. It's the single command. It's the simple command. It's the difficult command because there is no loophole to the law of love. 
And while this feels like a new thing, this should not be a new thing to us. This is the brand new that Jesus came to bring in the first place. This is what it was supposed to be as we followed Jesus all along. And for all the ways the church has failed that, and for all the ways Christians have failed that, next week we're going to talk about some really practical ways that the church can begin to show love and that Jesus' followers can show love and bear fruit that Jesus wants us to bear in the world. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace for us. Thank you that our relationship with you does not depend on us, but it depends on you. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his example and his call to love. Thank you that while it's more simple, it is far more difficult. And all of us have room to grow, to live up to Jesus' example and Jesus' standard and to meet Jesus' calling to love. So God, for all of us, when our conscience wants to well up and make us think that there's something that we have to add to Jesus in order to connect with you, God, help us to resist that and to leave behind the old so that we can cling to the new and we can cling to you and find the simple, difficult, clear, personal connection with you that Jesus made available for every single one of us. And God, help us to love. Help us to love the way that you have loved us Help us to love the way Jesus showed us. Help every single person listening to my voice right now to take a step today to grow in love because that's the only thing that counts is how our faith causes us to love someone else. How our faith causes us to show the love that you have shown to us to someone around us. So God, help us to have wisdom to know what to do with what we just heard. Help us to have the courage to actually do it. We pray this all in your name. Amen.